The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Liam Proud with Reuters Breaking Views in London. How much is a piece of music worth? Well, one person you should know is songwriter and producer Niall Rogers, the founder of disco group Chic, who's also responsible for hits like Good Times, Let's Dance by David Bowie, Madonna's Like a Virgin, and more recently Daft Punk's Get Lucky. Along with super manager Merck Mercuriadis, whose resume includes Beyonce, Elton John and Morrissey, he's helping to buy up some of the world's most sought-after back catalogues of music for hundreds of millions of dollars. Two of them sat down with me in London to talk about the venture, which is run by Merck and is called Hypnosis. And they also share some thoughts on why many songwriters feel they're getting a raw deal from streaming services like Spotify. Enjoy. So, Niall, Merck, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So, I'm really curious about this project you're both involved in. Now, Merck, you're the founder of it. Hypnosis, you're the CEO. Niall, you're an advisor to it. It's a music publishing company. Um, and could you just give us a little bit of background about where the idea came from and kind of, you know, why you're spending so much money on all these back catalogs? Well, a couple of things. First of all, Niall is also the co-founder of it. Sorry, Niall. Um, That's okay. I don't mind it. People have called you worse. Just, just this afternoon, in fact. <laughs> um, the, uh, the second thing is that I object to the word publishing. Pub- publishing is, is, is a word that I want to eradicate from the vernacular of the common musician in the next 10 years and replace it with song management. But that's a, a, a you know, a for later. In, story. That's, a, that's another story <laughs> for later in the podcast, perhaps, or for another podcast entirely. Right. So the, the, the concept was really simple. Nile is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And myself as a manager that has had the great privilege of working with some of the greatest songwriters of all time, both felt that the value of songs and, you know, the the song is the currency of today's music industry, more so than ever. And we felt that songs were undervalued and we felt that, that um, you know, we had both a motive and an ulterior motive. Okay. The motive was to establish songs as a new asset class and to convince um, the biggest, you know, institutional investors in the world. You got some big ones on your show. We do. We're, you know, well, and it's common knowledge from the Church of England to Invesco to Investec uh, and 35 others. We've got 38 of the biggest uh, institutional investors in the world. But we wanted to demonstrate to them that proven songs are predictable and reliable and therefore investable and on a par with golden oil, and in fact, even better than golden oil, because if Donald Trump does something crazy tomorrow, golden oil are affected. If you know Brexit happens tomorrow, golden oil are affected. Whereas with songs, if people are having an amazing time, songs are the soundtrack for that celebration. If people are having challenging times, um, songs are the vehicle to escape those challenging times. That's so great. music Anti-cyclical. is always consumed. <laughs> yeah uncorrelated is a word that the financial community yeah. loves and mm-hmm. great songs are genuinely uncorrelated so kind of like uh you know that's the philosophy of a lot of kind of hedge funds right you know you're trying to not be correlated to the the you know cyclicals of the, that's the, the economy correct. and stuff that's yeah. fascinating so when 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 you're picking the targets right how what does that process look like i mean how do you know which songs are going to be good earners i mean obviously you'd say that was a popular one but there's been a lot of popular songs. Like, where do, where, how do you weigh up these decisions? So Nile wakes up and says, 
man, I've just been listening to this record. This record's dope. <laughs> and I wake up and I do the same, same thing. thing. <laughs> you, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, there's a really interesting predictability when it comes to songs and music in general. So even if you have some example that's like at the absolute tip top of the food chain, unlike other businesses, that middle part is still doing incredibly well. Right. So you don't actually have to have the biggest song in the world. It can just be a really good song. As a matter of fact, if, if we tell you how many covers I get in a week, it's unbelievable. Uh, today, we recorded just, just, I mean, just, and this is sort of like an average day. Today, we recorded, uh, re-recorded uh, over a song that I wrote 36 years ago right. and people walked in the room and went wow what is that that's unbelievable and it's like you know well when we first released it it actually sold about 4 million copies in a couple of weeks and can you imagine what we made when we first released it and it's continued to make money ever since that first day it was heard on the radio that's amazing and these you know these great songs are constantly being regenerated yeah. and you know part of our uh, uh, thesis is that unlike a traditional music publisher being a song manager and also buying proven songs, even at half a billion, more than half a billion dollars invested to date, we own 5,000 songs. Sony Universal Warners own 20,000 songs for every creative person they have working for them around the world. We own 5,000 songs. Over 2,000 of them are number one records. Over 4,000 of them are top 40 records. So our catalog is very small and manageable. It's managed by 14 people that will become 21 people. So it's a couple, you know, a few hundred songs per mm -hmm. person. Each person knows what the repertoire is that they're responsible for. And each person is focused on creating ideas to put those songs in movies, put them in TV commercials, put them in video games, have new artists cover, cover them, them all over again. Mm -hmm. Wait, when, is that, when you say rejuvenated, you mean that stuff? I mean, it is obviously also something that, I mean, Niall, your music has been sampled and sampled and sampled again. Yeah. Yeah. Rapper's Delight was one of the famous early kind of you know, the, examples of that. Yeah, that actually started the, the, the precedent. That was yeah. basically, that built the paradigm for yeah. the current sort of music business that we're in. Um, people realized that there were um, uh, almost like collage art. Like it, they realized that you can cut and paste something um, from one source and put it on another source yeah. and create a new design, if you will. Um, what happened with Rapper's Delight um, was a perfect example of today's music world where they actually took the real sound mm. from the finished product and took that real sound and sampled it and put it over another sound and it was like wait a minute guys I can't just make a music video and go take like the bar scene from Star Wars and stick it in my video <laughs> I mean you know uh, they're gonna say uh, guys that cost us yeah. millions and millions of dollars to shoot that and uh, I remember when I was explaining it to um, uh, our record company at the time who was afraid to get involved in the lawsuit with us. And I said, don't you understand that 
for us to come up with a song like Good Times, it took our whole lives to, to get mm. this right. We had been trying to do things like that for a very long time, mm. but you, you, know, you get close but not quite right. Good Times, we nailed it. It all sort of worked that particular day. So it was that, that one day with Bob Clear Mountain at Power Station, with Bernard Edwards, with Sheik, with all mm. of those people, Luther, you know, that whole thing, yeah. All of those elements had to come together to create that project that made that thing that yeah. <laughs> that Rapper's Delight took and said, hey, we love that. Let's put it on our record. So you, obviously you didn't know about it before they did it. We it had was, no idea, but yeah. that's the whole point is that now yeah. you do, for the most part, know about it. And there's steps that you follow to get that done properly. What few people don't realize is that that very sophisticated system that exists right now whether it's on a sample or yep. whether it's on an interpolation, was totally pioneered by the action that Niall and Bernard took mm. at the time. The legal action against Sugar Hill Gang. Well, it wasn't even it a legal action. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Didn't, right. it didn't have to get to that. But, right. but the process that exists was something that came from advocating at that time and going, hold on a second, we can't let this happen again to the next, next person. Right. There has to be... A system and the system's really simple. If you want to interpolate the song, you ask for permission from the rights owners and the people that wrote the song. If you want to sample the song, you ask for permission for the from the rights owners and from the people that performed the song. Yeah. Right? And, right. and the fine. producer. <laughs> and and if you get a yes, then you negotiate what the rate is that you pay. And if you get a no, then you go should have a lot. Go write your own. Go, go <laughs> write your own her. song or sample, or sample someone else's or interpolate someone else's. So you, you used to phrase a minute ago, which is song management company as opposed to a publishing company. I wonder if you could both talk about what, what is the distinction there? I mean, from your point of view as, as, a, as a manager and also from your point of view as a songwriter as well, Niall. I mean, how, how, does that, how does that differ in practice? So for me, I, you know, if we look at my relationship with Niall, I take my responsibility to Nile and to any other artist very, very seriously because I can't play the guitar. I can't sing a song. I'm talentless from that perspective, but I'm obsessed with music and I want to be a part of music. So what I have to offer, what gives me a seat at the table is that I take the responsibility of communicating, advocating, executing very, very seriously. Um, and I recognize that if I fail in my responsibility to Nile, that I'm putting him in a position where he's going to fail in his responsibilities to other people, you know, whatever it, it, it might be. I don't see why it should be any different when it comes to songs, right? These songs have saved my life. These songs are energy of their own, whether you consider them to be, you know, human or not, <laughs> they are energy and they are the energy, as far as I'm concerned, on which the world goes round and I'm prepared to be responsible to them. Mm. And that starts with, you know, we look at each song as, as, as a P&L, not from the point of view of, of, of its own, not from the point of view of, of making it institutional or making it a business, mm -hmm. but from the point of view of just having a starting point to say, well, hold on, 
what's going on with this song? Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. doing great? Mm-hmm. Is, is its heart beating well? Yeah. Or do we have to love it and nurture it and put some attention to it that will allow it to take further? So, yeah. you know, without... The financial pulse of the yeah. song. So, yeah. so with, yeah. without naming names, you know, there was a song that we had that we all sat around and, and, and we looked at it and we went, you know, what's the P&L on that song? And, and someone came back and said, well, that song, earned, you know, our share of that song earned seven grand last year. And we all just went, fuck, that's crazy. This, this is, this is an incredible song. Yeah. Right. Um, but so, and, and the initial conclusion was that must be wrong. Right. 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 So, but it, wasn't. but it, and it wasn't. So we went to work and we put the song in a TV commercial and the TV commercial paid 500 grand and our share of that 500 grand was 125 grand. So suddenly the song went from seven grand to 125 grand, seven grand the year before we bought it. 125 grand in the first year that we've bought it. But what happens is that people are looking at this TV commercial. So now they're pushing play on Spotify or Apple or whatever their favorite streaming service is, or they're buying the physical of the vinyl or the CD. And probably by the time you get to the end of the year, our seven grand becomes 150 grand, right? Right. That's a pretty good return just by paying attention, right? It's not that we're we're rocket scientists or that we're smarter than the average person. We're not. We've just created a model that allows us to be able to have the bandwidth mm. to take that responsibility for each song that I'm talking that I was talking about, and right. also having the the passion and the love. Because if you didn't have that passion, um, your instinct can often lead you down the wrong path yeah. uh, typically because we are in love with something and it feels like your child almost I mean to me as a composer mm. songs are really important um, the way that they get inside me and I just can't you know get over them <laughs> um, like you, asked, you asked about you know how do we pick the songs yeah. you know, so we have everything from sweet dreams are made of this to you know Bernard's share of we are family and Le Freak through to, you know, don't stop believing and everything in between. But like one of the things that, that, that came through was that there was an opportunity to buy the late Al Jackson's catalog, mm. right? Now, most of the world doesn't know who Al Jackson is, right. but Niall knew that Al Jackson wrote Let's Stay Together. He knew that he wrote Call Me. He knew that he wrote Still in Love With You and all of these great Al Green songs. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, we were able to make a deal that that was very attractive to the estate. But part of the reason why we were able to do that was because we were passionate mm. about that set of songs. Who are you going up against in those deals? Is it, I mean, are you, are you bidding against major labels or is it just... We don't feel like we're going yeah. up against anyone because every everyone else that's trying to do this is a banker yeah. or someone that was a, a, a major record company or major publishing company executive i not people that sat on the artist side of the table, right? Yeah. I, my reputation and my money comes from, you know, being in sync with the artist. I've, I've earned my money and my reputation with artists, not at the expense of artists. It's not something that most people in mm. this business can say. Which bring, brings us on to something. I mean, you know, there was this, this letter that was... Um, sent to you know spotify obviously the enormous uh swedish streaming company that's taken the world by storm 
um, and it was it was quite it was quite a it's quite a p trenchant letter and mm -hmm. no you're a signatory to it and I think Merck you were you were involved in it somehow perhaps sure um, and it was it started with a very simple four-word sentence which was we're hurt and disappointed um, yeah. I mean could you could you could you guys talk a little bit about where w w how is Spotify disappointed songwriters I mean what, what's going on there I, I think the the immediate reaction uh, was because Spotify um, formed uh, a committee, um, if you will. So let's use that as the working right. title for what they were. And it seemed like they really understood our plight. Yeah. Like they get it. I mean, they, they are a company that's moving this music, moving our children around, if you will. Um, and creating new homes for these yeah. for our kids. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, you know, something that I nourished now, Spotify is saying, well, okay, I'll deliver that to you and yeah. it'll be great, great quality. It'll be terrific. It'll be the way Niall hears it. And we believed that, um, that they understood the problem philosophically and spiritually, like they got it. Um, so for them to say, well, you know, um, now it's sort of a question of being, and this is, you know, I don't know if this is what their thinking was, mm -hmm. but now it's a question of we have to be more responsible to our stockholders instead of b believing that, well, wait a minute, hang on a second. If these people whose children we're delivering, and I'm using these, yeah. you know, it's all euphemisms, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, but, sure. um, if we deliver them better and we, you know, we become a better service and all things are great and we start to cut up the pie a little bit and give them more, well, then they're going to renew their licenses with us and they're going to stay with us forever. And we're going to, they're going to see the big picture that we're actually all on the same side and we need to be, you know, playing together as opposed to thinking that um, if you take something away from me, that's less for your stockholders or that's less for, you know, it's like, you know, music, musicians, when you think about it, technically, we've not gotten a raise in what, how long? What? Twice <laughs> in 75 years. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we are, we're massive supporters of Spotify, Apple, streaming as, as, yeah. as, as in, in general, because, you know, we can remember as little as five years ago when it looked like the best days of the music business were behind it. We wouldn't, if we were meeting five years ago, we would not have been able to look each other in the eye and say, the, in fact, the best days of the music business are in front of it. Yeah. But, you know, we've gone from 50 million paid subscribers two years ago to 200 million today to what JP Morgan are predicting will be 2 billion mm -hmm. by 2030. That's only 10 years away. So streaming services have saved the music business mm -hmm. and they've done it by creating a delivery mechanism that makes it more convenient for the consumer to once again consume music legally and it's efficient and it allows access to everything and you know you wake up tomorrow and Adele's got a new album and bingo you already own it mm -hmm. and you know you wake up a few tomorrows from today and and you know the Beatles have released a 50th anniversary version of Abbey Road mm -hmm. as they will on you know, in September, and bingo, you own it already. So it's the perfect delivery mechanism for today's world, and it's blowing up the pie. The problem with Spotify is that um, they 
failed to recognize, and as Niall said, we thought they were recognizing through their secret genius campaign, mm. they failed to recognize that without the song, they are nothing, right? Spotify is a great piece of technology, but you're not paying your 10 pounds a month for their technology, you're paying their 10 pounds a month because you're going to get Chic and you're going to get the Beatles and you're yeah. going to get the Rolling Stones and Camilla Cabello and Journey and you know all of these other wonderful artists. And the songwriter, as again now pointed out, hasn't had a raise in 75 years. Yeah. The copyright board ruling, which is really what this is about, the copyright board in America passed a ruling into law that the songwriter would get a 44% higher share of the earnings incrementally over the next four years than what they've had previously, right? Spotify attempted to appeal that for reasons that I'm sure they'll reveal. They've, They've subsequently, I think, admitted that their appeal has very, very little chance of succeeding, um, but they attempted to appeal that, and that sent a message to the songwriting community that, in fact, you don't care about us, and you don't recognize that without our songs, you don't actually have anything to deliver. And I think that ultimately what it comes down to is that there is an imbalance that exists between what recorded music gets and what the song gets. That's not Spotify's problem. You know, Spotify and Apple take 30p off of every pound for the service that they provide. I think Niall, myself, every other creator out there would say that's fair and equitable, Mm -hmm. right? They've got this massive constituency. Mm -hmm. They've built up these hundreds of millions of payers and listeners. Mm -hmm. They've developed the technology, etc. What's not fair is that that remaining 70p gets split up approximately 58p, almost 59p for recorded music, of which the major labels keep 80% of and only you know give something less than 20% to the artists, and 11p goes to the songwriters, right? Mm-hmm. And that imbalance is, you know, that's the ulterior motive of our fund mm-hmm. is how to advocate to get that imbalance addressed so how, how do you do that what's the so, what's the right well, what's the, the right reform what's well, the, the right structure well you know if, if we look at a comparable as being the movie business right and you know now you're mr paramount pictures and nile and i are working for the screenwriters guild nice and we we come in every three years and we basically say to you listen mate we know you got george clooney we know you got denzel washington reese witherspoon whoever but guess what without our script there's no movie to make and you're not going to get our script unless you pay our writers properly. And every three years, they scream and they shout and they call each other names and they threaten to bring production to a standstill. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they, they figure out. out a way of paying the writers more money and what is it now? What did they say in Hollywood? Everyone lives happily ever after. Because <laughs> <laughs> they need I mean, each other. It's an ecosystem. Exactly. It's not a, right? you know. But that, that little illustration that I've just explained has never happened in the music, in the music business, business. Yeah. because Universal, Warner, and Sony, the, big the three, three biggest labels. song companies in the world, can't advocate for songwriters because they're owned by Universal, Warner, and Sony, the three biggest recorded music companies in the world. And as I was explaining, four-fifths of the money are going this way. There's a huge margin, 
in the way of recorded music. Mm. And in general, they own the masters forever. And on the song side, one-fifth of the money is going that way. In relative terms, it's a tiny margin. And quite rightly, whether it's through reversions or renegotiations or smart deals in the first place, the songs end up in the hands of the people that created them. So they use that leverage to push the improvement, like the improvement that's coming at us from streaming, towards recorded music, at whose expense? At the expense of the songwriter. So we should be clear, just with our listeners, who might might have missed that, that, you know, there's there's two basic classes of royalties that you're getting in the music business. There's Mm -hmm. those for the the, The the actual recording, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's usually the label captures the big share of that. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, the kind of middlemen in the industry, the big the big mm-hmm. three usually. Yeah. And then you've got the actual underlying composition, you know, the Correct. that would usually right. go to a publishing company. And what you're saying is you don't it's it's almost a conflict of interest to have those two under the same roof, right? Well, it, it is a conflict of interest because it's what has resulted in songwriters not being advocated for. Yeah. And, you know, how is it that you only end up with two raises? in 75 years, right? Now, what you have to also understand is this, and it's important to put this in context. The business that Niall and I came into um, was one where 90% of the artists wrote their own songs, were, you know, had a very good idea of who they were, who they could become, what their album cover should look like, what their stage show should look like, etc., um, whereas today, 90% of the artists that are being signed are really talented people, but fame is the end game. So it doesn't really matter which, you know, whose How song they're singing right. or whether it's social media or whether it's a TV talent competition. So when in the, the, the original paradigm, the imbalance didn't matter because the artist and the songwriter were one and the same. Today, you've got a guy like Ryan Tedder, who this summer has given the Jonas Brothers a smash the Jonas Brothers are out playing to you know, 20,000 people a night, making 750 grand a show. And I'm not suggesting that Ryan Tedder should be seeing any of their live money, but he should be getting his fair and equitable share yeah. of the balance of the money. And because right? of the way that these royalties get traced through, right, it takes it could take years for two, that actual money to get two, through. It's a two-year two money go-around. Two-year cycle. Yeah. So the thing is, is that uh, what Merck, uh, just said was really important. In when I first joined the music business, um, I most of my income was. First of all, I was making more because we were getting paid more in a, in a strange way um, because we were selling hard copies yeah. of, of the product. So um, I was making good money off of record sales, but the fact that we could just gig anytime we wanted. Um, was really important and we made a large amount of money from doing shows being able to go out and gig whenever we wanted to do it Um, and that was a direct byproduct of having a hit song if we didn't have hit songs even if we had a great show we didn't have hit songs nobody would care so we would go out and we would be the beneficiaries of the products that we had already created, right? Mm-hmm. So we were the songwriters. We created that. Then we'd go out and do shows and we'd make money there. It almost was okay that the record company, which would advance many groups, a lot of money before they even proved their worth. Um, you know, I actually 
in a strange way, I was sort of happy that we got almost no money when we first got signed. Right. Because it was like, well, you know, let us prove ourselves. After we proved yeah. ourselves and we're worth this amount of money that we sold more singles than anybody else Seems on the label. Seems backwards sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, you'd think that there would be some kind of reverse <laughs> deal where they say, these guys are awesome. <laughs> we want to keep them forever, so let's go back and renegotiate, yeah. renegotiate. But the thinking is, let's get it while it's hot. Let's get it while it's good because nobody can keep it, mm. keep up that pace for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And I understand that. You know, we all go through hot and cold periods. That's just inevitable. Yeah. Um, so there was a sort of system that felt like it was balanced somewhat, but you could live with it. I mm. mean, you know, it was a little bit unbalanced, but we could live with it because we knew that we, it's like my life now. If I want to earn a lot of money, I just go to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just go and start <laughs> writing songs and making records and gigging. Yeah. But you know, the when I make money. The funny thing is, is that, that you know, Chic in today and over the last four or five years, Chic have become, you know, Nile Rodgers and Chic have become one of the biggest touring bands in the world. Yeah. But the reason why they've become one of the biggest touring bands in the world is because people want to hear the Chic songs, mm. the Sister Sledge songs, the Diana Ross songs, the Daft Punk songs, the Madonna songs, the David Bowie songs, the Duran Duran songs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They like hearing that, them the way they go. That <laughs> Nile, that Nile co either created yeah. or co-created, right. Yeah. right? So he's the exact opposite of what, you know, today most artists are, are, are selling tickets on the back of singing someone else's song. Yeah. Nile is today selling <laughs> tickets on the back of having created, you know, having 40 years of created some of the greatest yeah. songs of all time or co-created them. So in a sense, the, the people that you're, you know, sticking up for are the people that, you know, aren't as lucky as you, Nile, to have, you know, written a lot of songs and also have to kind of be the performer and have the public profile to do it right. and to actually get paid in multiple different ways. But it's, it's not yeah. but it's not for that reason. It's yeah. really because fundamentally without the song none of the other stuff is yeah. even possible. Yeah. I mean it's it's very difficult. I mean it it's really rare especially in today's world people want to see and hear what they know. It's a little bit unfortunate when I came up we actually went to live shows to hear new music, right? I mean, that's really what a concert was. I always try and explain that to people, and they look at me with a very befuddled look. I, was, <laughs> I said, yeah, even if you went to see the Jackson 5 that had a whole catalog of hits, if you went to the show, half of the show was songs you never heard before because either that was going to be on their next album or that was on their current album that you haven't bought yet and you only know the single, uh, but they played that whole album where you hear this new catalog of stuff. What, what's the Carl Sagan thing about, you know, if you want to boil a cup of tea, have a cup of tea, you got to create the universe first or whatever. <laughs> right, right. It's, the, it's the same thing with the song. It's like, you know, there is no music business until right, you have yeah, the song yeah. first. Right. The song is the universe of the music business. Yeah. It's true. So, you know, it, it's it's very difficult sometimes when I explain that to people and say, you know, the world we live in now is a world of people. Um, it's funny. Yesterday, we're working on this project with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he used a phrase that I thought was fantastic. He says, um, the comfort of the audience. And I said, wow. Audiences in today's world 
are more comfortable when they're familiar with what's going to happen on some level. Like they, th those moments where it's like, you know, weird and it's new music, they sit there sort of a little bit befuddled, a little tense, or if they're like me and they just appreciate virtuosity or cleverness, they're like, awesome, check that out. But most people really want to go see what they know already, which is an interesting situation, but that's what the world is. Um, if you have hit records, you're going to have a bigger audience, period, end of story. If you have songs that people love, you're going to have a bigger audience. The audience is going to be happy when you play them. Um, that's, so if you are the person that's created those songs and you never get on the stage, like you don't have that other avenue of revenue. You're behind the scenes. Right, yeah. Yeah. which in a strange way, I'm, that's you know the world I live in. I've basically been a behind-the-scenes kind of guy most of my life, uh, except the fact that when Chic went out, it was always a big deal because we, we've always, you know, I say this with modesty and, and great humility and a great deal of thanks. I have never had a bad band, even before <laughs> Chic. You, I mean, you can go look on the internet and see us in this little black and white thing that we cut so that we could try and get jobs. And we're killing. We're playing. Right. We're just like a guitar trio. And we put a white guy in the band who was my friend yeah. just so they could think, well, they're an interracial band. <laughs> <laughs> but normally we were just a trio. We can put them in more rooms. <laughs> but, you know, without him, we were killing. The song sounded exactly the same. And we're playing like Earth, Wind, and Fire. We didn't have any horns. We were just, yeah. you know, because we were just good players. Yeah. Um, and people appreciated a cer certain virtuosity and you know and, and clarity and, and 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 I guess interpretation of a song feeling making you feel the way you like it the way it's played on the radio Great. like they didn't need us to go in and do what Devo did to Satisfaction if we played Satisfaction we sounded as close to the Rolling Stones as yeah. we could um, typically because we were a covers band and when we played our own original music well it was its own thing but yeah. when we covered your song we played it the way it went yeah so um you know you've as going back to hypnosis now so you, you've spent quite a lot of money and i think in the i was flicking through the annual report the other day you said something like there's about pipeline of about a billion more than a billion dollars worth of songs correct that you're looking at i mean just to finish off i mean where next? I mean, I don't expect you to... You, obviously, you can't say what you're going to buy. Yeah, we're not but allowed I mean, to say what, what we're going to buy. What are you, what are you, in general terms, what are, you, what are you thinking of? Well, you'll have seen that as early as yesterday, we announced that we bought Benny Blanco's catalog, which is obviously one of the most prestigious catalogs of the last few yeah. years. Um, Justin and, Bieber, you know, hit, Major Lazer, a bunch of other stuff. Precisely, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it will continue along those same routes. You know, recently we bought Don't Stop Believing in the Journey catalog. <laughs> you know, and, you know, so as I was saying before, from, you know, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This to We Are Family to Don't Stop Believing to Camila Cabello's Havana from last year, number one global song of 2018 to Maroon 5's Girl like, Girls Like You to the best of Justin Bieber songs, et cetera. Um, you know, what we are doing is we're delivering the biggest songs in the world and we're demonstrating that despite the fact that they're already uh, predictable and reliable, that we can add value to them by nurturing by them, them and by, you know, by, treating, by, them like by, treating, them, yeah. by treating them as if they're a, an energy that we're responsible to. Great. Niall, Merck, 
thank you very much for your time it's a thank pleasure you, man thank you that's all for this week folks thank you very much to london's south bank center for giving us a comfortable place to hang out and record the interview and most importantly to the super talented producer freddie joiner Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com, reuters.com, and on Twitter at breakingviews.